Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 85 for Jack Hendon and Sam Levowitz here bringing you some, some podcast action, some early Tuesday morning podcast action if you're listening to us then, which is probably when we're dropping this episode, because as it stands right now, it's a little after 10 p.m. East Coast Standard Time. Uh, I'm here in Cape Cod in a screened-in porch while it pours around me. I'm getting sprayed a little bit through the screen. Um, so if you hear some downpour, I apologize. And Jack, in your apartment in New York City, a little oh, more my. protected from the weather. No, I'm on my fifth floor walk up. I'm sweating like Jason Vargas up here. It's not a, it's, it's, I don't have it too easy up here either. But that's, that's like. a straight up flop sweat. Yeah. That's a visual of a very bad thing. Yeah. Well, you're on the Zoom. You can see it. it, it it's, we're, we're dripping and not big certified, drip. certified wet guy, Jack Hendon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Pittsburgh Pirates reliever, you know, that's me. Just the hair looks wet and you can't describe it. You don't know whether it's sweat or if you just took a shower, but you're positively stopping. Anyways, the Mets. Let's let's talk, let's chat about the Mets because this is a Mets podcast, after all, in case you forgot. Uh, this week in Mets land was fine, okay, like two and three since we last talked to you. They, they lost two in Houston. Um, wasn't very pretty. Definitely got outplayed. And then one, two out of three in Miami, probably could have swept that series. Literally thick Nortez, if you ask me. Yeah. Mets still hold the best record in the National League at 47 and 27, the second best in baseball behind those pesky Yankees who got no hit this, got no hit this weekend, but otherwise seemingly refused to lose, um, which has been incredibly frustrating to watch as a, as a New York baseball fan with an inferiority complex. Regardless, uh, the Mets still five games up on the Braves and eight up on the Phillies. Uh, and that's really all that there is to write home about in terms of the standings updates. The Braves have cooled off a little bit, but they faced better teams this week. They went toe-to-toe with the Giants and pretty much held their own against the Dodgers. They lost two or three in that series, though. So overall... Less reason to worry about those Braves nipping at our heels because, frankly, I don't buy them as this good, but it is what it is. The Mets are back to struggling a little bit with runners in scoring position. One out of 13 with runners in scoring position on Sunday. A big reason as to why they lost that game 3-2. to two. But overall this week, Jack, they were just 5 out of 37 between these five games in these two series. Yeah. Uh, the days off, honestly, were were refreshing for me, you know, not necessarily for the team, but not having to watch anything on Monday, not having to watch anything on Thursday. Like, I was okay with that. Uh, the games in Houston were just really, I mean, honestly, the best way to describe it was like just non-competitive, uh, especially the first game. Um, I don't really expect Trevor Williams to do what he usually does against a team that hits as well as the Astros do. But, um, you know, we had our scare with Carlos Carrasco. I'm glad he's doing okay now. Uh, definitely going to be interesting to, to go through the rest of this season, not knowing if we are really ever going to get those five guys in a rotation together between obviously Carrasco Bassett and Walker, but also DeGrom and Scherzer. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, 
nerve wracking uh, as we get nearer to those two guys returning. But it, you know, it, there's a lot of optimism on that front and uh, we'll get to those two guys doing really well. All in all though, wasn't really a great week. You mentioned the five for 37 Francisco Lindor was responsible for like three of those hits. And then Eduardo Escobar had one. Otherwise I think he's probably been like the scapegoat this week in terms of performance on offense. It's been pretty bad. And then Pete Alonso had, he hit a couple homers in Miami. I think he's continuing to do what he's usually done uh, the last year or two now, which is hit a lot of home runs, um, produce for them offensively without a doubt. But uh, it, it it wasn't really moving. I think you could maybe chalk some of that up to Jeff McNeil not being there, which by the way, like we're coming up on what would have been like the sixth day on a 10 day IL stint. And I'm kind of wondering what the, the thought process on that is like, clearly has a hamstring problem, clearly isn't 100%, also could be going on paternity leave anytime soon. It just feels a little bit like a uh, a weird sort of non-move on their end to not IL him. But, I mean, it's like I'm not – Pretty classic Mets. Yeah, I, well, I've moved on from the whole sky is falling thing. Like the team is obviously good. They're 20 games over. I mean, we don't even peel through like the the record books anymore when we talk about like – where this team stands against, uh, you know, teams of Mets past, because really it's just the 86 team in, in this group at this point, like they're, they're just still, that good. They're still on pace for like 104 wins. Right. Like I'm not worried per se, but was it a bad week? Yeah, it, it was, it, it was a bad week. It wasn't a great week for sure. Yeah. I mean, you ran into an Astros team that frankly just won't stop really. It seems like year in and year out, this Astros team, no matter what pieces they lose, they put together a really good product and we get two more games with them at City Field this week. They reshuffled their rotation so that we get the pleasure of seeing Justin Verlander in the series. It's going to be Framber Valdez on Tuesday, probably against Carlos Carrasco. Seems to be ready for the start after that back spasm, back tightness. Uh, and Verlander is going to go on Wednesday, which is a shame because it's going to deprive baseball fans of what was probably going to be a Garrett Cole-Justin Verlander matchup when – the Yankees and Astros uh, head to Houston to play over the weekend. Um, but the Mets get to try their best against one of the best pitchers in baseball and Justin Verlander, who is the lawful good equivalent to Max Scherzer's chaotic good. Chaotic, well, how would you align Max Scherzer? Chaotic good? Definitely chaotic something. Chaotic chaos, probably. Honestly, chaotic like a chaos. Chaotic neutral? Uh, yeah. Chart. Maybe like good chaotic, something like that. I know yeah. that we're not really speaking in terms of that uh, that that board, I guess. But yeah, I, I think I'm, that Verlander. Yeah. Is... I was doing more of the alignment chart, right? Um, like, no, that's, I think that you can't really align Scherzer anywhere. He's not really like um, you can't track him. You know, he's just so irregular. He's so strange, but we love him. He's ours. He's he's our weirdo. He's um, definitely, oh, yes. Did you see the article in The Athletic today that came out that was, I know you were at your thing all day, but like they put out this article today that was basically a collection of stories. They talked to like 12 ex-teammates, a lot of former catchers that he caught with, both in Arizona, in Detroit, and in Washington. And I think they even talked to James McCann, um, who he also played with in Detroit. Um, and it's like, stories about Max Scherzer being crazy, but also being like just genuinely a really good dude and a really good teammate, really a worthwhile read. 
Um, even though we don't like Sean Kelly on this podcast, he's featured prominently, the right. former Nationals reliever, and he had some banger stories. Uh, I, I, I haven't heard these. I would love to hear these. Oh, yeah. There was one in which I think it was Kelly in which during spring training, Kelly asked if he could borrow Scherzer's jet skis uh, so that the relievers on the Nationals could do like a day out on the water, um, like a little retreat team bonding thing um, mm-hmm. during spring training. And Kelly didn't, I guess, like anchor the jet skis correctly. And so the next morning, everyone was like, where's Max Scherzer? Where's Scherzer? Have you seen Scherzer? Where's Scherzer at? What had happened was the jet skis wound up like a half mile downstream in the, in the water, um, clanging against some rocks. He like rowboated all the way down to like grab them individually on his own, was late for the day's festivities at the field to practice slash game, whatever. And as penance to Sean Kelly, he was trying to find the keys to Kelly's like uh, Jeep Rubicon, like decked yeah. out jet, like Jeep Rubicon um, with the intention of parking it in center field during batting practice. That would have been good. That yeah. would have been good. He should have done that. And that's, that's absolutely like a Sean Kelly thing to do just to forget where you you know, how to park or not even know how to anchor. It was like, it was like Kelly and Joe Ross who like fudged it and like, didn't, I guess you have to like press a button so that it like raises a certain level so that it's okay during whatever the tide is when you're like parking it and they like, didn't do it all the way. And yeah, again, not a Sean Kelly podcast, um, not a pro Sean Kelly podcast. He's a crybaby, but a good story. Definitely worth the read. It's in the athletic. Um, really, really good stuff. Also another story about how in order to cleanse like a thousand dollars off of a betting debt that Kelly had to Scherzer, he told him that if you throw one warm-up pitch in your next outing and that's all you throw, then I'll clear a thousand dollars off your debt to me from like fantasy football. And so Kelly went out there threw one warm-up pitch when he got brought into the game, told the umpire he was good. Like he was ready. The umpire looked at him like he was crazy, but she said, okay. And the outing didn't go well, but Scherzer, like true to his word, cleared a thousand dollars off of his betting debt. Cause Scherzer's also the guy who's always like the commissioner of those leagues. Yeah. Well, except for the, the, the Tommy fam, Jock Peterson league. Of oh, not that league. That's, that's right. a, bad, that's a messy league to be a part of. But that's Anyways. how you know it's bad. Cause Scherzer's not running it, but yeah. Yes. Anyways, Scherzer, is great. He's really fun. There's a cool little quote in there from Gerald Laird, former catcher, who basically said something to the effect of when I saw that he signed with the Mets, I knew instantly he was going to change the trajectory of that franchise, which made my heart warm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, go read that. Some fun Scherzer stuff in there. Lots of story fodder. Uh, if you ever get the chance to talk about Max Scherzer with literally anyone, he's crazy in the best way. Uh, speaking of Scherzer, you mentioned the starting pitching and the health of the rotation. And it seems like we are not quite as close to Max Scherzer as we thought we would be because we were hoping that the one rehab start last week in Binghamton was going to be enough and that he would rejoin the rotation. What would have been Sunday in Miami didn't happen. He needs one more start. So he will be a pumble Roni one more time 
and again, pitch for the ponies in a rehab outing. And I can't help but agree with him because when he talked to the media about it, he was with the team in Miami. He just kept saying over and over and over again, like the same sentence. He was like, I can't have a setback. I really can't have a setback. Um, so he knows how important he is to this team. He knows his own body better than anybody. He's always been a guy who's been a workhorse and doesn't break. So I appreciate that Max is taking an extra week or 10 days to ensure that there is no setback and that he doesn't get hurt. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have to like deal with one more time through the rotation with Trevor Williams and David Peterson. Um, but if it takes Scherzer being able to put up, you know, 15 starts down the stretch and five more in October, I'll take it. Yeah. And I also like, I sort of, there's something sort of poetic about the, I can't have a setback line. Cause I feel like the line that we were fed all of last year. Right. And it didn't, I think for most people, the player that we attach that phrase, it's not a setback to was Jacob deGrom. But this also happened with like Brandon Nimmo. This happened with, I think, Michael Conforto at one point coming back from a rehab and rehabbing back from an injury. Like guys who clearly weren't really there, but were being forced into coming back um, and finding their footing at the big league level, which can be a very difficult thing to do, especially for pitchers. Like, you can't just be throwing again if, if you're not 100%. We literally saw this with Tyler McGill last week. Um, you need to be prepared. The Mets evidently have a better understanding now than they did last year of what they need to do to ensure that their guys are 100%. Max Scherzer is someone who had about an eight-week timetable to come back from an oblique injury. And he's, you know, I think if if this start ends up being his last one, it's a four-week it's a four week recovery on something that's really supposed to take at minimum six weeks. Yeah. Um, he did. He did a six to eight week recovery timetable in roughly four weeks. Right. And like it, they're it, clearly doing their due diligence. To and by sure. the time he, by the time he gets back on a mound for the New York Mets, it's going to be closer to six weeks, but yeah, he got himself into a position where he can make rehab starts after like four and a half weeks when it was yeah. like an eight week timetable that we had, which is ridiculous. Right. We and thought then, we mean, were going to, we, we thought we were going to get him and DeGrom basically at the same time. And DeGrom has been throwing his bullpens, but doesn't look too close to a rehab right. assignment. That could happen any day. Like they could tell us any day that he's going to start a rehab assignment. But at the moment, Scherzer's a good two, three weeks ahead of DeGrom at minimum. Yeah. And we're also at a point too, where I think with DeGrom uh, starting the rehab assignment, I mean, it, it obviously would be like the last hurdle to clear before he can come back, but it's all the more reason for that hurdle to be like an extremely lengthy process. Like we're probably going to at least get two or three rehab starts from him before the team really knows that DeGrom can throw, he can throw on five, four or five days rest. He can do it five innings, you know, that sort of thing. Like that takes a lot of time to really like build back into somebody, especially in DeGrom's case where you're really dealing with like a much, uh, a much more, uh, problematic injury something that could really have more lasting effects but you know in Scherzer's case too like he is like 38 years old um and they clearly know that he needs to at least check if he because he's already been sore I mean the reason that they're really doing this rehab start again for him is because uh in the days following his first one he was dealing with soreness uh after 
after pitching for the Rumble Ponies, right? But I guess going back to my original point, like for Scherzer, we're now at a point where like he's pretty much on his way out of the rehab process. He needs one more start, maybe two more starts, but we know now that he's he's fine to continue rehabbing. Whereas I think with DeGrom, um, we really do need to be careful, but like that's just how quickly Max Scherzer's been working through this and also how carefully the Mets have been handling not only Scherzer's injury, but DeGrom's injury. And I think just on the whole, it is encouraging to see. Um, I think there's a lot also to be said about the way that the guys who are in the rotation have, have, have held their end up, right? I mean, we talked about Carrasco bouncing back. Obviously, Chris Bassett is, is great and we love him and he's probably the best guy they have right now. But um, I mean, Taiwan Walker had another good start um, on Friday night. Like they, they're, they're, they're doing a pretty good job, I think, of answering the bell. Even David Peterson, like as miserable an experience as it can be to watch him when he's missing arm side with his fastball, like it's still so much better than it was last year. I mean, last year was basically unwatchable. This is just like you get one or two hiccups a game. There's a chance that that hiccup turns his game to crap. But if he does, if he gets past that, you're still going to get like four or five innings of like one, two run ball. Like it's usually yeah, basically, mild. Like basically where been, I'm at with David Peterson yeah. is that he is like 2017 Steven Matz. Like he's a lefty. He doesn't go very deep into games. He's a little erratic around the plate. Things can spiral on him. And I don't enjoy watching him pitch very much. But yeah. at the end of the day, he is a back-end starter. He is fine. You know, you don't want it like you can do better than him, but he is a big leaguer Mm -hmm. and we are spoiled to be able to say that when everyone's healthy, we do not have a guy like David Peterson in our rotation. Right. Because we have better pitchers. Yeah. And Uh, credit to David Peterson also, because he had a good start on Sunday. It was a really, really good start, I think. Um. I don't know if he got the full seven innings done, but he made it to the seventh inning. I haven't been doing a great job following these games, but I yeah, you well. yeah, you and I have been in a relatively similar position where things at our day jobs of sorts. I don't really want to call mine a day job because it's not during the day most of the time. It's during Mets games most of the time. Uh, think you know things have been busy for us, so we have. This is a Mets podcast with two guys who barely watched the Mets this week, but yeah. We still kept up on the storylines best we could. By the way, the Cape Cod Baseball League rocks. I'm really enjoying this league. Um, the YD Red Sox are red hot right now. Can't stop them. Um, eight of the last ten don't, you know, that CCBL title is is coming soon to a, to a municipality in Cape Cod near you. Anyways, um, I hop off my high horse about Cape Cod league play. I've seen some really cool dudes um, this summer already. It's been great. Regardless the Mets, because this is a Mets podcast, not a Cape Cod baseball league podcast. Uh, I think you had a great point on Jeff McNeil there that we definitely should harp on a little bit. Uh, He hasn't played in a full week. Now today is a full week. It's June. The 20th was the last time he appeared in the game. It's a hamstring tightness deal which can be difficult and can take a little bit of time sometimes if it's an actual strain of the hamstring, but they haven't IL'd him. 
I don't know why. Uh, maybe they will today because they added an infielder to the 40-man roster. Uh, if you missed that, I wouldn't be surprised if you did because his name is Kramer Robertson. He has one major league at bat. He was in the Brave system. They DFA'd him off their 40. The Mets claimed him. Uh, he is a 27-year-old infielder who was drafted out of LSU in 2017. And by all indications, he is not anything to be excited about. He's only there because his name is Kramer. I yes, just want to put that out there. I want to submit that Steve Cohen saw a guy named Kramer on the waiver wire and picked him up. That's I absolutely have, what happened here. He's not going to play. He said to himself, I have to do the Seinfeld joke. Yeah. And he, he did. That's a hundred percent what happened. Like, I don't think Kramer Robinson Robertson's getting playing time. They'll DFA him like, just like they did with Coteau with Blankenhorn. I, I really do believe it's a troll. I think it's a troll job. Yeah. Speaking of Travis Blankenhorn, I don't know if you saw this this week, he reached base in 12 consecutive at bats. Yeah, he's he's Brandon Drurying it up there. He's 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 tearing it apart. It's I, it's cool to see. Like I, I miss Travi Blankenbags. Anyways, the other infield depth on the forty man roster, Mark Vientos and Ronnie Mauricio, which are two guys that once you call them up, you don't want to have to send them back down. So understand why they're not calling those guys up. Vientos yeah. very well could be major league ready or as close to major league ready as he's ever going to get. He's like had a fine couple of months. Yeah, um, I still don't think he's very good, but I don't I don't have a take other than that. He can't play a position, and I don't think he's that good. But right. he's probably yeah. a major leaguer, in whatever definition you take that to mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, with Vientos, it's interesting because like if you needed a bat, you would call up Vientos. But the the problem with like losing McNeil. First off, I don't really think that adding like the McNeil problem probably resolves itself if like Escobar starts hitting. I think that this team has generally been very good at the next man up thing. And this is an instance in which there isn't really a next guy up because the guy who would be up is just not getting it done. Like Yorme is doing what like Escobar maybe should be doing, but Escobar is not doing anything of his own. He's not contributing anything. He had a really, really bad week. I'm trying to be sympathetic to him because he had the medical incident. Potentially it was something that he's been going through for a little while beforehand. And that was just last week was where it came to a head and you needed to be rushed to the hospital. I'm not about to speculate on what it is or isn't. I'm really, really trying to give him a break because I also really like him. And I think he's extremely important to the team, but he didn't have a good week. Um, yeah. Really offensively. It was, it was hard to watch. And there are a couple guys on, on this team who have not been pulling their weight. And they're all guys who are at the bottom of the order right now. Like you get past the first five or six in this order and like maybe Luis Guillorme is having a good game, but then you have Escobar and you have the catcher spot. The catcher spot has been a black hole all year. We'll get to that in a little bit, but like back to Vientos, like I don't really know if you can put him in this lineup right away, but at the same time, like they don't really have an infield solution on hand. Maybe that's why they're not ILing McNeil because at even at like half power or whatever we want to call it, like he would still be more useful than Mauricio or Vientos right now. And I mean, if he's really hurt, you should just rest him. Maybe they really do believe it's only going to take him like nine or 10 days, but like, 
I don't know. I think that with the pitchers, they're doing a good job. Jury's still out with this McNeil thing. I feel like yeah, I, I'm with time. You. There's also the other question with Vientos where, you know, we had our first actual trade that happened today. Carlos Santana is a Seattle Mariner. And if Vientos in this organization's eyes is just a trade ship, if they don't view him as a long-term contributor to this team, then if you bring him up and you expose him to major league pitching, it's a lot easier for teams to evaluate him. And it's a lot easier for teams to see why he's a guy they shouldn't trade for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also a part of the formula that I can see with Vientos as to why maybe you don't want to bring him up right now. If he's a guy that you are hoping to trade, hoping has another good three weeks down in Syracuse and you can flip him for a decent arm of sorts or reliever, whatever you think he's worth. Um, yeah, the offense, mostly not worried, slightly worried. If McNeil is not ready to go for this Houston series, uh, I'm okay with him sitting against Framber Valdez because that's lefty on left, and Valdez is a, a tough matchup for any left-hand hitter. But, like, you want to stack as many of your better hitters, especially your better left-handed hitters, in the lineup against Justin Verlander because uh, that's just a game that you're probably going to have to win 3-1. to one. Yeah. Uh, And any offense that you can get in there helps, even if he has to DH. Like, I'm okay with that. Right. This offense is not going to get – by for much longer on Pete Alonso carrying everyone. Right. And that's what it's been really for a couple of weeks now is Pete has been the only guy hitting for any consistent power in this lineup. Lindor has been fine. Nimmo has been fine. Canna has been fine, but Pete is the, the big producer in this lineup. And this lineup has gotten to this point this season, being as good as they've been being 20 games over 500 on June 27th by being a team where it's not just one guy contributing, where it is everyone, right? for the most part, who's contributing. Pete Alonso has been fantastic. He's got his OPS over 900. He's got 22 home runs, which is the most in baseball. If you're not named Aaron Judge, Judge is the only guy with more than 22 homers in baseball. He is 28. And frankly, he's not even having the best offensive season in the American League. This is a hill that I discovered today that I'm willing to die on. Jordan Alvarez has better numbers across the board besides the homers. Uh, whether or not you think Jordan is the front runner for MVP, probably not the case because judge is a New York Yankee and also plays really good defense. However, Jordan's triple slash line in both his WRC plus and OPS plus are better than Aaron judges. Sure. So back to Pete, back to Pete. That's just a fun take that I discovered today. If you want to talk about it, hit me up on Twitter. I'll debate the wall, you know, whatever uh back to pete pete's been fantastic he's yeah. really he's been fantastic i mean game one in miami when he hit the two home runs he won that game for them single-handed yeah yeah and game two also he hit a pretty big home run right i mean it's 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 one of those things where like when the guys ahead of pete are getting on and they have done a good job of it like like you said nemo's doing a good job i'd add starling Marte has been pretty hot for a while now like those guys get on and Alonzo can just empty the the cartridge right there and it and the runs come in. But like behind him, nobody's getting on, which means in turn, when you then get to the top of the order, like you're just starting from scratch, like every time, like Escobar's not getting it done. McCann's not getting it done. We're at a point now in the season where like, I don't really have any faith in either J.D. Davis or Dom Smith to get it done. Like 
their at-bats are just appalling. J.D. Davis is an extremely easy out if you throw high fastballs. It's almost mystifying to me how so few pitchers get it done because that's like the name of the game now if you're like in analytics and you're looking at pitching. The best way to attack a hitter is to go up and in. And with J.D. Davis, he's like so vulnerable, it's almost laughable how easy it is to get him out if you just throw high fastballs. I like I'm I'm I know they're going to start him against Framber Valdez and I know how it's going to end. Like it's watch he's going to be good now that I've said that. But like like to this point I don't really have any reason to believe that it's going to go well for him. Um some some guys just got to pull their weight here. That's that's really what it comes down to. I think Sunday was like a really damning indication of that because they had so many chances with runners in scoring position but because the ball was you know because the bat was in like James McCann's hands we couldn't do anything about it right I mean I don't think that Tanner Scott is that good I'm sorry I that might be a controversial take he does not throw that many strikes you should be able to foul pitches off you should be able to work him and make him walk you at minimum like and McCann couldn't get it done Escobar had bad at bats again like this isn't going to be a whole episode where we talk about them, but I think that with Pete Alonzo's performance, it's especially frustrating because like he's literally just like their weapon every time there are guys on base and there hasn't been much else this past week. There isn't another weapon because uh, there aren't other opportunities to, to drive guys in really. Yeah. I mean, it's been fun though. Like with Pete, like he's still on pace. He's like on pace for like 50 something, 60 homers. Yeah. Like, He's getting up there. Yeah. He's he is like 2019 Pete again. Mm-hmm. And we've seen bits and pieces of it, but he really hasn't done a full season of this since his rookie year. Yeah. And I mean, like, if this is just Pete Alonzo now, the Mets have a superstar on their hands. And like he's been a very good player his entire career and is obviously a guy who gets a lot of media spotlight. But if not for Paul Goldschmidt, he's been the best first baseman in the National League bar none it's goldschmidt and him really and freddie freeman's had a decent year like but it is pete and goldschmidt who are the two that should really be in contention for that starting spot at the all-star game i don't really care about the all-star game all that much i don't really think that it is an indication like fernando tatis jr is fifth in all-star balloting for shortstops he has not played a game this year it's also just a first half award when you think about it it's a first yeah it's, it is, there should be like, I'm all for having a, a, an all-star game in the middle of the season, but you should say like, there should be an asterisk that says like first half all-star, and then they should do all-star for the second half of the season yeah. at the end of the year where there is no all-star game, but it's like at the end of a season in college where like first team, all conference, second team, all conference, third team, all conference, like yep. you're a post, you're a, you're a postseason all-star. Yeah. Like NBA, um, do it just like that. Exactly. Yeah, I think that that would be a better indication of how good a season a player had rather than the way it's currently set up where guys who are having bad seasons can start the All-Star game if they're a famous enough name. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at with the All-Star game. Go vote for the Mets. Go vote for your favorite players. Go vote for Alejandro Kirk for starting catcher for the American League because no one in the American League in the catcher position is hitting even a little bit beyond Kirk. And um, Kirk is Kirk is small, and that's important. And rotund. He's he doesn't look like an athlete, but he does things that athletes do, which is part of the fun. 
It is. It absolutely is. It's Prince Fielder syndrome. It's like people love watching rotund baseball players succeed. Like Dan Vogelbach. Like, yes. Yeah. Large adult son syndrome actually is, I think what I should call it is we want to be protective of these large adult sons that we have. I've been very protective to Dan Vogelbach his entire career. Would you consider Pete a large adult son? I think he, he knows on it. I think honestly, like he, he is kind of P shaped when he walks around. Uh, he's more dad body than outright. Sure. Large. Yeah. I don't think he's, I don't think he's like a top five large adult, but he is like, he's, he's also, I think to be, to like qualify as large adult, you don't really, I think Kirk really works because like it doesn't, there's something about it that is separated from the actual on-field offensive product like fielder i don't really consider a large adult son because his power came from his weight right he was like, also just like an outright superstar for a minute there yeah yeah like kirk is someone who looks like large adult son hits really well but doesn't necessarily like smash the ball you know what he, i mean yeah he, except for this week where he hit like four homers in five games or whatever it was but right yeah right. i agree with you i don't think pete is a qualifies for large adult son because he still looks athletic enough doing the things he does. And he's and power, he gets his power from his physique. He is brutally strong. Dad yeah. is a very strong man. Yeah. He, I think he's great representation for guys like me who are a little more dad bod adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also lends himself to the, the jokes that, some friends of mine have made and some people in other fan bases have made that, you know, he's not the most physically fit looking person. Pete's probably in great shape. He's, he's probably shredded under all that dad bodness. He's very strong. Uh, I wouldn't want to run into him at first base. Right. Like that. No, no, that actually happened in a game this week on the Cape that I saw. We have a, a, on YD, we have a, a first baseman who's, uh, like 6'4", 240, and it's all muscle. Oh, God. And he was playing first base, and he got – our pitcher went to cover first base on, like, this weird soft grounder in no man's land and ran into the first baseman, and he just, like, collapsed. It was exactly like the Josh Reddick thing except the pitcher. Was he okay? He was fine. Yeah, he was fine. Okay, okay. Um, but it, Reddick was never very good after that. If we're – it doesn't get talked about a lot. But I think that might have been what ended it for Reddit a little bit. Maybe. Potentially, perhaps. Yeah. Anyways, that's just something that that was what it reminded me of instantly in that moment of, hey, that's just like the time that Pete uh, was the immovable object at first base. That was cool. Yeah. So to go back briefly, right, because we've talked, we've, we've now gotten, I think, all of it out of our system when it comes to the offense, because I think it was, for the most part, a letdown this week. We talk about reinforcements. Pitching, it's like, you know, Scherzer and DeGrom coming back, like, yay, that's great. Like, hitting, it was like, oh, James McCann's going to come back. Like, all right. Like, Jeff McNeil hopefully doesn't need an IL soon, because at this point, like, if he's getting put on the IL, he's going to be out for, like, probably longer. Not, like, an ex- a really long time, right? But, like, you know it's it's it, it it will beg the question as to why they were never going to put him on the IL to begin with but like 
the only other reinforcement that people seem to be talking about right now, and I think it's a good place to pivot and talk just a little bit about the merits of this, especially because it's at a position that is so depleted right now. And that is Francisco Alvarez, the Mets catching prospect, arguably the best catching prospect in baseball right now. He's having a fantastic year in double A Binghamton. He's hitting 285. His OPS is in, it's 953. He has 70, he has 17 home runs through his first 61 games in double A. Um, a lot of people are talking about his defense not being great. I think that like if this guy's a long-term catcher for this team, you can't call him up until that's been ironed out and taken care of. Catching Scherzer might kind of help. We'll see. I think that will be really fun to check out how those two interact with each other. But like, like do the Mets move to promote the guy as their DH? Like a lot of people are suggesting that. Me personally, like I don't, it's it's for the same reasons that I don't really believe that they should be doing this with Vientos. It's just like, you don't really have a complete player yet. And in Alvarez's case, it's not even like a trade bait thing. It's literally like, you want this guy to be your catcher for the next five, six years. You can't, you can't throw him up there right now, give him big league at bats, but tell him he's not going to catch ever. That just seems like a weird cop out way to develop a guy. Um, yeah. And also with like it, it, the other thing too about it is like the catching position right now, offensively is a black hole. Um, in baseball. I don't, yeah. Well, in baseball in general. Yes. Yeah. A lot of teams win despite it. Uh, and the Mets having the second best record in baseball have obviously done that. They've won despite it, but like, I don't want Tomas Nito losing any time right now because of how good he is defensively behind the plate. If Alvarez is like the polar opposite, like I don't want to mess with anything that might be really good for somebody who hasn't even taken a swing in triple a yet. I'm completely with you. I think that Francisco Alvarez has more than proven himself in double a and probably should have a promotion soon. I do not think that that promotion is to the majors. I don't think that the game is complete enough. I think that you can send him up to Syracuse. And if he's still shredding the baseball for two months in Syracuse, then come August 1st, you can consider promoting him to help the major league club. But it's the same deal as what you were saying. If the defense isn't ready yet, you can't call him up because you can't have this guy DH only. Yeah. The defense should catch up. It's the weird opposite of what you usually have with a catcher, with a catching Mm -hmm. prospect, whereas the, the bat usually lags behind the defense for catching prospects. Right. This is the complete opposite of that where it's the op- like Yadier Molina was the most heralded defensive catching prospect in a long, long time, but he couldn't hit. But the yeah. glove was major league ready. The Cardinals brought him up way young. The bat eventually came around. He learned to, to hit enough. Uh, Alvarez is the complete opposite, whereas he can fake it a little bit behind home plate. He's a decent framer. It's a strong arm. He is still working on completing himself as a catcher but you're right teams win despite the dearth of offense out of the catching position in baseball this year because it's a lot easier to find a defensive wizard behind home plate a good receiver a good blocker a good framer nowadays than it is to find a guy who's 
decent at all that stuff and can also hit. Yeah. Cause catching is such a demanding position that even when guys are capable offensively as catchers, sometimes their bodies just get tired and it's hard to maintain that production while being an everyday catcher. Yeah. And the guys who can do that are the Buster Posey's are the superstars, right? Are the Joe Mowers. Yeah. And eventually guys who probably have to move off the position because it's a really hard thing to be an everyday catcher in major league baseball. Yeah. There's like one guy in baseball this year who is catching almost every day and is having an, a legitimate all-star level season from April 1st through today. And that's Wilson Contreras. Yeah. And he is going to be a hot commodity on the trade market. Potentially the only commodity among catchers. Like it's very, it's, it's going to be a really interesting package. Yeah. That goes like to Chicago for him. Like we've got Sean Murphy, who still, who has not had a good offensive season, but has more, thump in his bat than most catchers but is a guy who is still under plenty of team control i don't even think he's hit arbitration yet or if he does he's hitting arb one this offseason so he's going to be more expensive despite the a's having a couple of good catching prospects in shea langoliers and tyler Soderstrom behind him langoliers has played well in triple a this year and then like tucker barnhart on the tigers not even a starter is like- Maybe a, a, a backwards move offensively from even Tomas Nito and James McCann. Yeah. Buck, Tucker yeah. Barnhart is a multi-time gold glove winner, but I mean, Tomas Nito could win a gold glove this year. That's how good yeah. defensively he is. Like he's we really love. We don't need the glove. It's got nothing to do with the glove. And that might be why the Alvarez discussion is like so tempting for people, but like Alvarez really like, if you were in AAA, I'd be more sympathetic to this idea. But like right now, I'm definitely like you. It's end game once you call him up. Um, he's yeah, amazing leader once you call him up. He's too good of a prospect to be jerking around. You do not put him on the shuttle again. Like I talked about with Vientos and Mauricio, these are not guys that you call up yeah. just to send down if they struggle for three weeks or if the rest of the team starts hitting and you don't have enough playing time for them all of a sudden. Like these are not guys you call up to sit or not guys you call up to send down in a month or in three weeks. These are guys that when they're ready, you call them up so that they can get consistent at bats and start five times a week. Now, is this a guy that you trade? That's the next question, because I think we're in the same boat in that Vientos and maybe especially Mauricio are now tradable guys. Like, I'm okay with the Mets moving on from either one of them if it means bringing in a real reinforcement that's going to take them from number two to number one uh, in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I'm, I'm, again, with you there. We really need to find things that we disagree on more because I'm with you. Like, those those are two guys that I don't think either of them are as blue-chippy, prospecty as I think a lot of fans think. You know, Vientos has a lot of deficiencies deficiencies in his game, as I mentioned earlier, with the defense and – I just don't think he's that good a hitter. I think he's fine and he'll probably be fine. Ronnie Mauricio has like flashy tools, but the physique has kind of gotten the better of him in terms of his athleticism. He's a guy that probably won't stick at shortstop long-term because he doesn't run well anymore. He runs like he has a piano on his back because he's six foot five. And he doesn't Um, walk. He also doesn't walk. He swings at everything. He swings at everything. If it's, eyeball high or in the dirt he will probably chase it the walk rate is abysmal the chase rate is super high 
Uh, so two ninety nine on base percentage through four minor league seasons. It's not good, and he no. hasn't gotten much better. But There's yeah. Here's the I thing. Think, okay. Yeah. I think yeah. I am also against trading Alvarez. Here's the thing for me is that there are three major thresholds for an offensive player to cross through their baseball career mm-hmm. if they're a high level athlete. The first is from college to the pros or high school to the pros slash overseas uh, academies, um, Gulf Coast rookie ball type stuff to the pros, to the the mainland pros, to full season ball. The second threshold is from the A ball range to double A. Because double A and triple A are pretty, you know, like there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah, double A, you got guys who don't belong there because they should be in single A, guys who don't belong there because they should be in triple A. But triple A is much more triple A. Yeah, in terms of the pitching, in terms of the pitching, the thresholds are into the pros, up to double A, into the upper minors, because you do get a lot of guys who move up and down in those levels, and there's not a huge differentiation between the normal everyday arm you're going to see in double A versus the normal everyday arm you're going to see in triple A in terms of the breaking balls and the velocity and all that stuff. And then the third threshold, is from those upper minors to the majors. Francisco Alvarez, if he was still in high A, producing at this level in high A, I would be more inclined as a 20-year-old catcher to trade him for the right piece. Yeah. But he has successfully crossed that second threshold as a 20-year-old catcher. So to me, I cannot trade him because what I have on my hand on my hands is a, a top five prospect in baseball and a guy who has successfully passed every test that's been thrown at him as an offensive player. And I need to see him produce. I need to see him have a chance to cross that last threshold for my team. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a fair way to look at it. I think for me, it's probably less centered on, where Alvarez fits in and where he's going to line up in say two or three years. And it's got more to do with like what you need to do if you're the Mets to like have the best team in baseball. Yeah, This is a conversation that is going to evolve a lot in the next couple of weeks because anything could happen. We could find out that Jacob deGrom is never going to pitch again, in which case we're talking starting pitchers, right? Like that's the sky is falling approach. Don't take my word for that. Right. Like that's me being hype, you know, hyperbolic but like really like a lot of things could happen um teams have won the world series with light hitting catchers before who play good defense james mccann and tomas nito are two of them and in nito's case the defense might be the best in the national league it's really really good if you don't want to improve catcher like if you're scared of training alvarez because you're basically going to have to to get your catcher or else you're getting tucker barnhart which is not an acquisition by any stretch like you can look elsewhere. Maybe you beef up your bullpen by moving guys out of the rotation and putting them into relief roles in the pen. Maybe you just trade for relievers, period. Sandy Alderson loves doing that. Um, I mean, he didn't do it last year and he should have done it last year, but also like, I think a lot about Tyler Clifford and I think a lot about Addison Reed as two really like solid deals that he made the last time the Mets were in a position to pull the trigger. Yeah. Moves you know? that moves that by and large put the 2015 Mets over the top. Yeah. It was Cespedes who 
put the team on his back, but that team is, is a lot less competitive against those better teams with a worse bullpen without those two guys. I agree with you. I think the Astros are the perfect model for this kind of thing. And they're still doing it to this day. They continue to bring back Martin Maldonado, even though he cannot hit or run. or run. Jason Castro is maybe having the worst offensive season in baseball among any guy who has started like half of his team's games or more. He has been so bad. I think he's hitting like about a hundred. It's 095. So even worse than I was giving him credit for. 312 OPS. You want to guess his OPS plus, Sam? Six. No. You might as well call it OPS minus. It's negative seven. It's 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 pretty bad. It's, you really don't see OPS plus go beneath zero ever. Yeah. That's how bad we're talking. But he's a decent defender, and he platoons okay enough with Martin Maldonado that you can play him twice a week and get Maldonado off his feet. Yeah. Because Maldonado is still an elite defensive catcher. And the Astros have made multiple World Series with Martin Maldonado. Right. So they, they make deep playoff runs every year with this guy as their yeah. catcher because he's a great receiver. He's a good blocker. He's a great thrower. He's a good framer. His pitchers love pitching to him. It, it, and that is exactly what you have with Tomas Nito, who has turned a very good defensive pedigree into probably being the best defensive catcher in the National League. Yeah. So you can get away with him starting four times a week, mm-hmm. even though he doesn't hit. But also to Tomas's credit, he hasn't been necessarily a complete net negative in the offense this year because he's hit pretty well with guys on base. Sure. It's a very small sample that I don't expect to hold up. But if we are going to give him credit where it's due, yes. The hits, when they do come, almost always come with guys on base, which is good. Um, I think to sort of briefly take us away from the catcher thing, like – you could even, I mean, we talk about Eduardo Escobar, like, and we talk about infield depth in general. Maybe Escobar gets just bumped down to your Jonathan VR from last year. Like, I no. literally remember when we first, when the Mets first signed Escobar and we compared his versatility to that of Jonathan VR. Like, literally, you could trade if you wanted to. There might be better options than it right now, but just for to use one example. You could trade for Eugenio Suarez if you wanted to. I don't think he's very good. I don't think that's the guy that they should be trading for. But if you wanted to get someone who can play along the infield and bump Escobar down, that makes your offense a whole lot better. You can get another bat who maybe platoons off of Escobar and you give Guillaume regular playing time from this point on because we're now almost coming up on July and Luis Guillaume is still hitting over 300 and the defense is like impossible to ignore it's it's also maybe some of the best in the national league like maybe that's how you do it um yeah that that's an avenue for sure that's absolutely an avenue i think that right now the team is got to look in two places they got to add to the bullpen and they got to add a bat also starting pitching dependence you know on the health like you mentioned which is a great point about this the the way you know they should probably add a back-end rotation guy regardless Mm -hmm. just because it's always good to add an arm and and to have another guy like that i don't know about suarez um i think there there could definitely be a trade with mariners like mitch hanniger is a pending free agent i know he's an outfielder you can find him at at bats 
<laughs> maybe not. Um, yeah, I know they just traded for Jesse Winker, but I would love Jesse Winker in New York. Uh, I think I I I would like to know what Jesse Winker would think of Jesse Winker in New York. I think that'd be cool though. That'd be funny. He, he said order pizzas. I think the fans would embrace him because of all the silliness that he's been through in front yeah. of the New York crowds. And I think that he would revel in it. I think he would really enjoy it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I got to take a deeper look at like the infield market um, because so, if it's, yeah. I'm not really convinced that Suarez is the guy there, but. It's also hard because there are like five sellers right now at most. There are not going to be a lot of sellers with this yeah. expanded playoff happening. Like, I mean the dream and it's, not going to happen because the Red Sox are 10 over now, but mm-hmm. the dream, excuse me, the dream is the Red Sox selling and trading Rafael Devers. Oh, yeah. uh, that's the ultimate dream, but yeah. it's or Cleveland trading Jose Ramirez. That would rock. That would be so great. And yeah. I'm so mad at them for extending him Yeah, for depriving us of that chance to reunite him with Lindor because mm-hmm. he might be, a top five, he is probably a top five player in baseball right now. Easily he's, the best for third baseman. Yeah. He, he is having such he is having such a quietly incredible season. Yeah. Like I actually genuinely get sad when I think about the fact that he is playing on such a mediocre Cleveland team and is going to be for probably the rest of his career, certainly the next three or four years. Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not anti-player at all, but in Ramirez's case, in like Cattell Marte's case, like, why are you making your bed like this? Why are you choosing to stay with these teams? Honestly speaking, like, do you not think you're going to make more money somewhere else? Like, he's also to blame for this happening. He should not be settling yeah, he, for being a Cleveland Guardian. It's not worth it. It's just so not worth it. He also could have made so much more money. If yeah. he just waited. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot to be said of having one place and staying there. I get it. I sympathize with it. He loves and playing in Cleveland. The civility is probably great. He's making he enough money. The best Cleveland guardian of all time, right? Like maybe it's just one of those things. But then again. He also, going back to the large adult son conversation, he doesn't have that, but he has a sort of similar vibe at points. Sure. He's got a little like chubby face situation yeah. that I think is very endearing. Yeah. He's a funny dude. He is he, a funny dude. I remember reading about him like playing Mario Kart all the time. Like that was one of my first experiences like into the aura of Jose Ramirez. It's such a it's such a bummer that we probably aren't going to be talking about him as a as a guy the Mets could get, at least not this year. I'm sure that Cleveland might give up on him, but I don't know. Like, I mean, yeah, we those cheaper organizations, we've seen it before. Guys yeah. who sign big extensions and they trade them a year or two later. Like the Rockies did the same thing with Arenado. So, yeah, who knows? Well, maybe the Tigers trade Baez if this rebuild thing really, really sucks. But then well, again, like, yeah, he's been bad for them. And my theory, my theory, un, unsubstantiated as though it may be, is that he wanted to play for the Mets so badly because that was the rumor, is that Javi wanted to come back to New York and they just wasn't a deal or whatever happened. But uh, he wanted to come back to New York so badly that having to settle for Detroit 
um, made him so sad that he has been bad this year. I don't yeah, know. Just throwing it out there. Maybe. A lot of interesting relievers. Uh, probably not a lot of time to get into them. The board will change a lot. Some of the names that, like, you should keep an eye out for if you're talking to your friends and you want to sound like Peter Brand for Moneyball. Um, Michael Fulmer and Andrew Chafin are two guys on the Tigers who might get dealt. Um, they're both impending free agents or Chavin is one more year, but I think in that, in those instances, like they'll probably shed what they can, if they can get a prospect, uh, Lou Trevino is having one of the weirdest years ever because his ERA is really, really high and his FIP and every other expected statistic is really, really low. Um, he's also an impending free agent. So like, I think that he'll be on the way out. Mariners are always a threat to just trade a guy for no reason. Diego Castillo seems to be someone that could make sense. Rysel Iglesias, who, if you didn't see the clip of him throwing the sunflower seeds onto the field, like you can't pretend you don't want that on your team. Like that's, that's, that in itself is probably worth it. Also happens to be very good. Yeah. Also happens to be pretty good. Really good changeup has a bit of a home run problem, but maybe it's just a pitching for the angels problem. Daniel Bard on the older side coming up on 37. One time shadow met one time shadow met Daniel Bard. That's right. When he was in his sidearming phase before he came back as a pretty good reliever with the Rockies. Yeah. God bless him for beating those yips. Honestly, you talk about characters too. Like that's a character that you want on your team. Um, Another character you might want on your team, David Robertson, who's still in the league. He's on the Cubs. He's having a pretty good year. Yeah. I mean, Robertson is a guy who I don't think will be that expensive. He's having a good year and I think could be pretty in line with the Tyler Clipper mold as, you know, a reliever towards the end of his career who you get midseason and just kind of leaves it all out for you on the field because he's playing for a contender all of a sudden. I think that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I like a lot of those names on that list. I think it would be so interesting to see Michael Fulmer pitch for the Mets almost a decade after they traded him um, in the Cespedes deal. Chafin would, I think, piss me off to no end because he cost the Tigers $6 million to sign, and he was right there for the Mets to grab, and they didn't sign him. Yeah. Uh, they, if they, they traded him, you're just – that's a prospect down the drain that you could have waste, you know, avoided trading if you if you send someone to the Tigers for Andrew Chafin. Yeah. Trevino's weird, like you mentioned, but could be a fun weird. Castillo seems to be – the exact type of frustrating to watch reliever that uh, the Mets are so good at having. Mm -hmm. And uh, Iglesias is probably too good to be traded, but maybe, you know, the angels suck. It's all it's, it's, that's all I'm thinking really. There aren't that many teams that are definitively right now, like probably going to, you know, get it all up, but there's some dudes in that pirates bullpen in the Orioles bullpen. I think that Jorge Lopez could be really interesting. Who's been closing games for the Orioles. Who's all of a sudden like a turbo sinker guy after like a career is like a really crappy sixth starter. Yeah. Um, He's like a back end bullpen type now and he's been good. And Mm -hmm. I think that he could be a guy that could target because the Orioles are shockingly better than they've been in years past. Yeah, And it's largely due in part because of a bullpen full of guys you've never heard of who are having good years. Yeah. And Lopez is chief among them. 
So I think he could be interesting. You look at the Pirates. If you're willing to shell out a little more prospect capital for a guy who's got some team control, um, Bednar, David yeah. Bednar, is having a really good year, a yeah. breakout year, and see what he costs. Otherwise, you can go for someone uh, else in that bullpen who's a little more lower on the totem pole and might not cost as much. Like a uh, – honestly, I'm not sure. I'm just thinking of – Bad guys, bad teams. Chris, Chris Stratton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Like, hey, they DFA'd, they, they DFA'd Anthony Banda today. They when they released Heath Hembry. Yeah. So Embry the worm is turning. I'm not totally who Hembry was good as a Met. Yeah, he was. I think he was a guy that we probably would have liked to see on a minors deal at least, just to see what he could have done in spring training. But absolutely, I I do hope that they they do a full measure here and not a half measure with their bullpen. I don't think that the move is to get someone who can take Chase and Shreve's job. I think the move is to get someone who moves pretty much everyone else down a peg so that yeah. everyone's getting a more important, they're make, better suited for a job that a worse makes, player currently has. Yeah. Who makes Chase and Shreve pitching in the seventh inning of a one run game. Not necessary. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am also still team call up Eric Orze. Should that ever happen? Yeah. Um, Colin Holderman's healthy, by the way. We haven't talked about that. He's healthy, but they sent him down AAA. So hopefully he's back with the team helping out at some point relatively soon. Uh, you probably are not going to make it through the rest of the season with Tommy Hunter on the 26-man 20, roster. So there is some don't know that. in that bullpen. You don't know that. He's been decent. Don't know that. Has he given up an earned run yet as a Met in two years? I'm not sure. I, no, he hasn't. The answer is no. He hasn't. Oh, now I know because the answer is no, as you just told me. Anyways, He's Tommy fun. Hunter is great. I love Tommy Hunter. We need more guys like Tommy Hunter who also great, you know, great, um, great exposure for the dad bod guys. Is he yes, great representation for the dad large bod. adult son? He's not a large adult son. No, he's firmly dad bod. Pitchers can't really be large adult sons, I think. No, but There's they can certain be dad athleticism bod. to it. They can definitely be dad bod, and he is certainly dad bod. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's got the he had the back problems too, so it's like dad bod turbo, you know? Yeah, it's like really dad bod, like shit. He's been like, around for a long time. Yeah, kudos to Tommy Hunter for still shoving. Yeah, at age seventy three, whatever however however old he is. I remember when he was like on the Rangers and the Orioles as a starting yeah. pitcher. Was he in that Chris Davis trade when they sent him to Baltimore? I think so. I think he was. I think Darren O'Day might have been involved in that trade too. It might have been a separate one. There were a well, couple characters that the Royals and – or sorry, Orioles and uh, Rangers dealt around. Like I think Pedro Strope might have been someone that went from the Rangers to the Orioles in a similar deal like – some weird, funny stuff, but Hunter's been yeah. dominant for like the yeah. better part of like, you know, he was dominant for a while and he's just been really good for a while too. Okay, the yeah. Jose speaking, thing was speak, just waivers, but yeah. speaking of Rangers, the Mets get the Rangers in town after the Astros. That'll be interesting. I, I'm excited for that. It's yeah. been a while since we've played these West Coast teams. Yeah. And also, speaking of that trade with Tommy Hunter, really turning back the clock, maybe. 
maybe we take that as a segue into remembering some guys. Oh, yeah. Are you going to be remembering a guy that the Mets got in a trade for Tommy Hunter? No. Okay. Is that an avenue you want to take? Because you No, it's not. It's not. I will not be remembering Dick Mountain. I think I remember Dick Mountain with Rob uh, a couple weeks ago. Okay. For Matt Dyer, also in that trade. That's right. One of the 2020 draft pick guys who I don't think anybody in that draft is still in the organization. I don't freaking know. Uh, I'm paid to know these things. I'm not paid at all, actually. Trying to think. Who did they take in the first round in 2020? PCA. Oh, yeah. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Um, oh, it was – uh, wasn't it? It's gone. The second round pick was uh, a pitcher. It was Ginn. Ginn. He's gone. Yeah. yeah. The, the important guys are gone. And also Dyer's, like, doing very minor league catcher things. So, it's whatever. But, yeah, who's your guy? Let's hear the guy. Hold on. Hold it. Now I got to go through this. Okay. Oh, Isaiah Green was also in that draft. He's gone. Yep. Uh, it was PCA, JT Ginn, Isaiah Green. He went in the Lindor trade. Right. Uh, Anthony Walters, shortstop out of San Diego State. Think he might be still in the org? We should ask Mike Meyer. That's I think he got cut. Maybe he got cut. That was a short – that was a that was the abbreviated draft, right? Like five yes. rounds. They had six, yeah. they had six picks. Um, Matt Dyer, who got sent to the Rays, and then Eric Orze. The last hope, man, Eric Orze. Yeah. Anyways. I think, um, I think I'll make it up. Yeah, he should. He's the splitter's good. Uh, he can yeah. get outs. Um, I'm going to remember um, Fernando Martinez because I'm thinking of Mets Astros, and yeah, that's really all. That's it. He's the first guy that came to mind with Mets Astros, and also we've remembered Lasting's Millage relatively recently, and he, in my mind, is the left-handed hitting parallel to Lasting's Millage, even though they had different issues. Yeah. Uh, for Millage, it was like a whole bunch of things. For Fernando, it was the health. Yeah, they also called up Martinez like very, very early in his career, and they did not give him like the requisite amount of playing time once they called him up. He was 20 when they called him up in 2009. And they like sat him. They barely played him. Like they gave him a hundred plate appearances in 29 games. Uh I'm looking at his stats. That's why I know this for yeah. I'm looking at his stats right now because that's a good pull. We haven't remembered him yet. I don't I don't think. think we have. Um, famously implicated in the biogenesis scandal, uh, in 2013, that was kind of a surprise, but yeah, he was someone that like, I don't know, he might, he just might not have been very good. Like, cause I remember watching him and being like stunned to think that like, this was someone that had been rated a top prospect. Like he had a very like small batting stance and like, didn't really have much of a powerful swing and um he had trouble playing the field too like he just ran around like he was on roller skates sometimes but um yeah I don't know just probably didn't work for him but you know another dude who just like probably gets a little bit too much hate for simply like being young and not being good enough um good pull Fernando Martinez I'm so my remembering guy I sometimes improvise through the episode and like we'll talk about something and I'll immediately just start thinking about like a year that it, you know, that that's on the topic or like a game that might be on the topic. 
you mentioned Justin Verlander, and I went into the Mets lineup for the last time the Mets faced Justin Verlander. It was 2016. Uh, it was a four to three loss to the Tigers in Detroit. Noah Syndergaard got the loss. This was in the middle of a really good year for him. Um, Justin Verlander went six innings and he struck out nine and got the win. Would you like to know who was batting second for the Mets that night? I promise you, like, it will piss you off to know who Terry Collins was batting second here. This was 2016, you said? Yeah, it was August of 2016, August 5th. Okay, so it simply – it has to be a second baseman. No, but it's basically, like, it's one of those kinds of positions. Like, okay. where you have, like, fast guy – fast guy bat second. Yeah, usually, usually usually old um, old baseball guy manager syndrome is fast guy bat first, second baseman bat second. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. 2016 it's not james loney is it it's not james loney they didn't bat him they did not bat him second but they batted him fifth which is also pretty objectionable also not good not a good place to bat james loney i'll give you i'll give you a couple names just to eliminate some ideas um brandon nimmo batted seventh in this game and played left field oh my god was this the series where Terry Collins like pinch ran for Nimmo or something. And then a guy got thrown out at home plate and he yep. was like, and he was like, well, for all I knew that guy was just as fast as Nimmo, whoever it was. Yeah. This wasn't the game, but it was the series. I think you're was... thinking of, he pinch ran like Wilmer Flores for Nimmo or something, just something absurd. Or uh, an outfielder, a different or outfielder. Bruce, maybe some some crap like that. But no, yeah. the, the answer that we were looking for, the number two hitter uh, was center fielder Alejandro Deaza. Of course it was. You're he right. Might have been the worst position player on that team that year. You're by like a country mile. Terrible. We've been doing this for 85 episodes now. You are so right. You know me so well about the baseball crap now. You're right. That does piss me off. Yeah, it's horrible. It's 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 literally taking your worst hitter and batting him second. Like but he's he's a left-handed hitter with some speed. Yeah, so that one him. that one step, that one extra step out of the box, you know. He handles the, the bat. Down. Handles the bat. If I need him to put a bunt down later in the game, he can do it for me. <laughs> he batted at to this point in the year that he was batting 200 with a 291 on base and a 307 slugging. Like, what what are we doing? Three oh seven slugging, batting him after batting him, sandwiching him between Curtis Granderson and Neil Walker. I think the goal for me is to remember as many guys as I can uh, that will remind those listening of how abysmal Terry Collins was at constructing lineups. Like this could not stand. This was like we had won a pennant the year before. We didn't need to do this shit anymore, right? Like it didn't need to be like that, but That's abysmal, horrible, horrible. Like right. the fact that he even stuck around that whole year. I'm sorry. I just did a whole thing where I was like, we shouldn't be too mean to guys who didn't play that well. But like, no, like Diaz is a veteran and he got so many chances. He got so many chances. They never cut him. They didn't, they like, they gave him at bats over Conforto. Like it was bad. Is my point. It's yeah. 
I mean, you look back and you're just like, how did we get through those years with Terry Collins managing this team? Because if it was like something every like that every day, and we we speak fondly of him for the most part as an endearing figure in Mets history, as our little elf manager who unfortunately since then has made some real shitty comments about Matt Harvey, yeah. but he was not a very good manager. No, he shouldn't have. He was over. He was underqualified. He was underqualified and he was and out he of stuck debt. around for like eight years. Most longest tenured in Met history. He has the most games managed more than Davey Johnson, more than like any of them, like more than Bobby V more than Bud Harrelson, more than Gil Hodges. Yep. And he it's... almost and probably should have won a championship here. Yeah, I'll sleep fine at night knowing that he did not get a ring. But yeah, knowing that that team didn't get one, that'll be hard. All this stuff is fake. None of it matters. In the end of the day, it's people are scripting this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether they're real people or like the fates of destiny, and none of the nothing that we do or anyone does has any impact on anything not to get nihilistic on you but right it really feels like there's just no consequences for bad managers or rostering crappy players sometimes anyways i digress i feel like that's a good place to put a pin in the episode on that yeah. weird little tangent that i just went on that everything is awful and nothing will get better tangent thanks thanks for listening everyone eat arby's Need Arby's. Need Arby's. Episode 85 of the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. You can put it in the books, folks. He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Lebowitz and Mets fan. Have a pleasant good evening.